At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You know, what you're seeing in a, in a Texas is the kind of constant negotiation to establish racial hierarchy, right? That the white elites understand that they certainly is predicated on anti-blackness and to a large degree on the exploitation of Mexican labor. Uh, but because you have this population that, you know, uh, you know, is, is, is racially diverse, you know, meaning the Latinx population, that means that Jim Crow looks different in a San Antonio and a Houston than it might in a, you know, in a Shreveport, in an East Texas town, which looks much more like uh, what we would associate with the Louisiana, Alabama or Georgia. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we're talking to the author of the new book, The Sports Revolution, How Texas Changed the Culture of American Athletics by Frank Gurity. I also have some choice words about the plans for March Madness, Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Awards. But first, Frank Gurity. My, my first question for you, honestly, is, you know, the book's called The Sports Revolution, How Texas Changed the Culture of American Athletics. Aren't you going to worry? Aren't you a, a little bit worried that you're just giving Texas another reason to brag? <laughs> uh, no, not really, because I'm trying to present a, a, a side of, uh, of Texas that I think folks often overlook. You know, um, I think that, you know, in some ways what, what's happened um what happened last week or two weeks ago now with the power outages and the water outages, you know, reflects what's wrong with Texas, right? The kind of dominance of the energy elite, the dominance of the Republican Party, the white elites. Um, and yet there's all kinds of histories of, of, the, of the state's marginalized peoples that, you know, you see, you know, in various social movements. And to some degree you see in this book, right? I mean, I really wanted to, the readers to sort of understand the impact of Texas-based athletes, marginalized, you know, uh, black athletes uh, and women athletes and their impact on on the popularity of sport. Popularity of sports nationally. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So maybe this is a good thing for Texas to brag about, since usually what they brag about are things reactionary. That's exactly right. Well, wait a minute. You've got this whole other world of which to be proud. And you're sort of putting the racists on blast because you're like, I dare you to be proud of this, too. (laughs) <laughs> That's exactly right, right? So if we're going to think about Texas sports, certainly you have to think about football. You have to think about the you know, the enormous popularity of football in the state. And to some degree, what happens in the 1960s and 70s is that what's this regional kind of, um, you know, uh, obsession with football at the high school, collegiate level, you know, then becomes a national phenomenon to some degree with the expansion of the American Football League, pioneered by, you know, the wealthy sons of oil barons like um, Bud Ahrens and Lamar Hunt, right? Uh, but but really, the story here is, is, are the athletes that are emerging out of the, out of the you know, out of the history of, of Jim Crow segregation, sexism, racism, patriarchy, and conquest and colonization. And they're, you know, they're, they're part of the story, no doubt. It's not just about, and it's not just about football. It's about multiple sports too, right? So it's about the kind of, the popularity of, of, of professional basketball, the popularity of tennis, the popularity of baseball as well, right? So I really was committed to telling a kind of multi, multi-sport story in this book. Now, a whole rack of the United States can be defined by 
Jim Crow, patriarchy, racism, you know, and the whole South of the United States, you know, has always lended itself to year round sports because of the weather, like football, which is one of the things that's also made it such a soil for future professionals. You know, a, a little bit harder to have homegrown NFL players coming from Maine, for example. Um, but that but that leads to the, to the question, what, what is it about Texas that made it different from, say, other states coming out of the Jim Crow South? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, to tell the story of the United States in general, right, uh, in North America and the Americas, for that matter, is, is to tell the story of conquest, colonization, enslavement, and all, for, all sorts of um, exclusionary and uh, displacement dynamics. You know, for me, Texas is important for two reasons. Number one, as I said, I think I think it, uh, the you know, the, the state and its and its and its managerial class, it's, it's you know, kind of it kind of coins the, the phenomenon of the sports entrepreneur, right? Uh, and you know, what you're seeing is as sports becomes more national, professional sports in particular, uh, you know, Texas is Texas first, uh, then Georgia, and then other states in the South that you know learn to understand the Texas sports entrepreneur. That if they're going to sort of make their cities, you know, uh, viable and popular and, and important on the on the national map, they have to sort of let go of segregation, right? Mm -hmm. So part of the story here is the ways in which you know even these the Lamar Hunts and the and the Bud Adamses and other folks who are sons of these right wing reactionary oil barons, you know, understand that if they want to bring sports to Texas, uh, they need to let go of segregation. They need to engage in some sort of partnership with with uh, with black uh, black populations in the state. So, you know, to some degree, the entrepreneurs in Texas are, are getting to that first. And you can even see this in the earlier period with the kind of the, the early uh, integration or the partial integration of the Cotton Bowl, which is one of the, 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 the important uh, New Year's Day uh, college bowls that emerged in the night in the case of the Cotton Bowl in the 1930s. Right. So, you know, to some degree, the entrepreneurs are understanding. Right. That that uh, that the new day that's coming in the 1960s and understand this, too, because of the, the civil rights movement as well. Uh, they have to sort of have a different position on segregation. Right. And then I think Texas is just interesting because you've got right elements of a southern society, Jim Crow, slavery with, you know, uh, elements that you see in, in a West, you know, so the American West. Right. The kind of the particularities of the, of the conquest and colonization of indigenous populations and of Latinx and Tejano populations, Mexican-American populations as a whole. So this is a book that wants to approach race, racism. Uh, ethnicity, segregation, and the, the, the ways in which sports catalyzed uh, um, you know, new, new, new dynamics of exclusion and inclusion by telling the story, not just from the perspective of black athletes, but other, also other populations as well. Mm. You know, oftentimes uh, people like uh, Bear Bryant, the coach at Alabama, gets credit for sport, the questions of sports and desegregation because he just wanted to win so badly. Um, what's the dynamic in Texas? And how widespread was it in Texas, this this general thought that, well, if we want to compete uh, and if we want to avoid boycotts by the black population, if we want to avoid criticisms by the black press, then we need to integrate. To what degree was sports the leading headwind of anti-Jim Crow integration in Texas? Certainly in the big cities, the Houston's and the Dallas's, uh, it, it plays a, a substantial role. Uh, one of my, it in this case, it's the black freedom struggle, right? Because 1960, 61 is when the sit-in movement is really spreading throughout the South and in Houston, in the case of Texas in particular, and other parts of the state. And the entrepreneurs understand that, as you said, they 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 want to avoid, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, criticism uh, and put being put on blast by the black press and black activists, right? 
In the case of Texas, you know, you're right. I mean, the, the, the folks like uh, Bear Bryant and, and Darrell Royal, the longtime legendary coach of the uh, Texas Longhorns, who figures in this book, they get a lot of um, attention. Uh, but it's really these smaller programs that are trying to compete with the big dogs, right? The University of Houston, for example, Cougars, uh, and, and you know, this, the SMU, Southern Methodist University Mustangs, coached by um, Hayden Fry, who really push in the 1960s for the desegregation of college football and college basketball, right? And it, so it is true that they're inspired by the desire to win. Hayden Fry says, Fry says this very clear in his autobiography, you know, but he also had an ethical compass. He sort of felt like, as he said, that, uh, you know, growing up in West Texas, he hated the fact that he couldn't, you know, engage regularly with his black friends. And he vowed that if he ever got into a position of authority, that he would change that. And I think that definitely inspires Hayden Fry's decision to sign Jerry Levias as the first uh, black scholarship athlete at SMU in 1964, right? So, you know, part of the story here is absolutely these coaches and these and the managerial class want to compete, right? And they want to sort of, they, they see what's what's on the horizon, which is a, a new day uh, in the U.S. and in the new day in, in Texas as well, because of the impact of the sit-in movement and other civil rights struggles. You know, I, I learned from working with John Carlos about the difference between East Texas and yeah. West Texas, you know, yeah. based, just based on his very personal experience running track in East Texas. Did you find that there were strong uh, regional differences in Texas in terms of how they responded to the push for integration? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, my book focuses on, I mean, one of the limits of the book is that it focuses on the big cities, the Houston's, the Dallas's, the Austin's, and and the San Antonio's, right? Because, I mean, Texas is a ginormous state, so the regional dimension is really important, right? So, uh, you know, East Texas and West Texas uh, are much uh, more resistant to integrate, right, than, than you know, the, the more uh, urban and suburban centers in, in, in the state, right? So, you know, like, I mean, uh, Buzz Bissinger's book shows this clearly in his classic, the book, The Friday Night Lights book, in which is the story of high school football in 1980s Odessa and Midland, in West Texas, and you're seeing the dynamics of desegregation pushing deep into the 1970s and 80s, right? So, but in these bigger cities, uh, you know, where you've got, you know, a more diverse population, you've got, you know, you've got the impact of these movements happening uh, very visibly, the dynamic is a, is a little different. I think you're, you're able to see sort of movement quicker in a Dow, in a, in a, in a Houston for sure, uh, and even in San Antonio, because San Antonio's, you know, ethnic uh, configuration is a little different because of its majority Mexican origin population, right? So, um, but, you know, John is right that uh, it really depends on where you are in the state uh, in terms of understanding, you know, the dynamics of racial transformation and, and resistance to, to, to desegregation. Let, let's talk about the, the Latinx uh, component to this, because, you know, oftentimes when we think of these issues, you know, big, big issues, desegregation, 1960s, it, it is laid out as very much a black and white question. But, you know, I've spent time in places like El Paso that certainly they have their own culture in El Paso, the, the border culture that combines Juarez and El Paso and has cr and creates its own thing. And that laid the conditions, of course, for, for you know, for University of Texas El Paso That's right. uh, to, to field that famous uh, all black starting five. Um, what influence does it have on our traditional conceptions of desegregation, the influence of, of the Latinx population? Yeah, you know, and this this always shows up. You know, we've we've seen this the, this the the kind of ignorance to some degree around this history, in all the debates uh, about what happened with the 2020 election, and and it kind of still on the national level a fundamental misunderstanding of, of the diversity of the Latinx population, uh, and and if it's of its political uh, you know traditions, right? So, you know, in the case of Texas, uh, you can't tell the story 
of, of freedom struggles in Texas without you know fully accounting for the the the, the impact of of Mexican American and other Latinx uh, groups, right? Uh, and of course, they they come in many guises, right? So you've got this Hispanic white identified element uh, that's trying to in the Jim Crow era. Um, trying to sort of uh, disidentify with blackness, but as a way to sort of make space for themselves legally in a legalized, segregated order. But then by the time you've got the 1960s and 70s coming along, you've got the, you know, the radical version of the, of the broader Chicano movement, right? Which is, you know, very influential. Um, and, 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 and also in the case of sports, you know, what I talked about early in the book is that, you know, sports plays a, a role in the survival of, of Mexican origin communities in Texas during the Jim Crow era, right? So I talk about you know, very briefly, you know, the scene in El Paso, right? It's very distinct. You're exactly right that El Paso, uh, um, you know, it, it, because of what happens with uh, with Texas Western, right, with the with the team that that becomes the team that beats Adolph Reeves, um, Adolph Ruff's uh, uh, Kentucky Wildcats, you know, they're an expression of a more fluid racial society than what you see in Eastern Texas, which is much more steeped in the history of cotton um, and 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 um, and racial slavery, right? So. Yeah, the borderlands are unique and different, and and but they're also really important in our understanding of not just you know the, the freedom struggles of, of the oppressed in the state, and and I would say you know nationally as well. Mm. This is such a, a rich topic. I mean, Texas in general, I mean, be, because of its diversity, because of its size, uh, and because of the epic nature of some of the programs that emerged from it, and because you know we all sort of live under the. I guess I don't want to say tyranny, but under the dictatorship of football culture <laughs> in sports and so much <laughs> and of Texas that, certainly does. <laughs> yeah. And so much of that certainly flows from Texas. Yeah. Um, for, I got to ask, how did you get hip to this topic? What, what, what attracted you to saying, you know what, I'm going to write about Texas? Yeah. Well, private was a, a, a outgrowth of my own experience. Right. So I lived there and worked there. I taught at the University of Texas. I'm a historian uh, in Austin for 11 years. Um, I've got family now in Texas. Uh, my in-laws are, are San Antonio Tejanos, you know, the descendants of people who showed up there in 1731. Right. So uh, I, I really developed an intimate knowledge. I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a New York, I'm a Northeasterner, but uh, I've lived in a lot of places. But I spent 11 years in Texas. And, you know, again, I think what I was trying to do with this book is is really demonstrate, you know, and I think it became more urgent after I came back to New York City, where I live now, where, again, I just see it from the East Coast. It's just a fundamental misunderstanding of of, of, of what Texas is about. Right. And, and I think, you know, I think you've seen you saw elements of that with Beto O'Rourke, Senator, Senator, um, Senate campaign in 2018, where you see less about him, but you see the Texas that came out for him, right? Mm -hmm. You see these, you know, for forward-thinking radical organizers who hitched themselves to his campaign. You see, you know, the, the the legacies of Black freedom struggles in the state, and even Native struggles as well, right? And so this book, it's not about those particular struggles, but it's trying to give us a, a, a portrait of Texas society, in which you see these actors in the story, right? And obviously people of African descent, black people are central to the story as well, right? I mean, they're, they're fundamental to the entire book and the entire story of, of the state of Texas. Um, but I really want, you know, the non-Texas person to have a sense of the diversity of the region, the possibilities that, that, that present themselves in a region like that. I think people in the Northeast also see themselves more enlightened as somebody who was born and raised in New York City. I know that that's not, that's not the case. <laughs> you know, I like to say that where was Donald Trump from? He wasn't from the South. He's from New York City, right? He, re he reflects a very deep-rooted kind of racism that emanates emanated in this in this city. I mean, he has a particular brand of it um, as a as a wealthy um, a real estate baron. Uh, but but nonetheless, I mean, I think uh, you know, I think what I wanted to show to people who are not from Texas is a, is a more dynamic portrait of the state. 
You know, Donald Trump's like a lot of people who I grew up around in New York City, except he has yeah. more yeah. zeros attached to his bank. Exactly right. That's exactly that right. Kind of uh, provincial, white, racist, very, very small view of people, and That's particularly exactly right. people of color. I mean, that that that. I mean, how do you think? I, I always say this to people. It's like, where do you think Rudolph Giuliani was elected from? That's too? exactly right. That's exactly How did right. Giuliani get elected in the so-called most liberal city in the country, yeah. all the rest of it. Yes. Oh, pure reactionary. Well, th this is such a great topic. I was I wanted to ask you about women's sports in Texas because you see this explosion of women's sports after, of course, the passage of Title IX, uh, damn near five decades ago. Mm -hmm. um, and what role does do, do do women play in this sporting revolution in Texas? Oh, they play a substantial role. I mean, the the the, the attention that I, I give the most to in this book is uh, well, two two ways. One is the the birth of the women's professional tennis tour, which happens in Houston in 1970, right? Mm -hmm. The well-known story of the original nine. Right, which is told in a national context. Right, we understand the, the enormous impact of Billie Jean King and Rosie Casals and Nancy Ritchie, and of course partnering and, and other players uh, partnering with uh, Gladys Hellman to create the Women's Professional Tennis Tour. But to some degree, I'm trying to tell the story situated in Texas. Right, and so you know Gladys Hellman is this east uh, is this uh, north uh, Upper East Side socialite who kind of makes herself into this tennis um empresario promoter right uh and she winds up in houston because her husband worked for the shell oil company because houston of course is, is central to the oil economy in this country and in the state uh and she uses her contacts with you know the texas scene the tennis scene in houston to create this tour in fierce opposition you know facing fierce opposition from the u.s uh, uh ta which was then at the u.s lta the united states um Law and Tennis Association. So, you know, it's to situate that story in the Houston context, context is really interesting. Nancy Ritchie, for example, who's one of the members of the original nine, become, plays a key role in, in, in popularizing uh, the need for, for uh, professional um, uh, athletics for women, right? She's one of the, the big tennis players that comes out of the state. And then, of course, the 1973 Bobby Riggs uh, Billie Jean King tennis match happens in the Houston. In the Houston Astrodome, which is a, a stadium that was built, the first indoor stadium was built in this country and opened in 1965 that transformed stadium construction for better and for worse. Uh, uh, and so to think about the birth of the tour in Texas, in this region that's got this kind of dynamic, you know, scene of entrepreneurship, but also activism. And, you know, to some degree, you know, what Heldman and the original I are doing are kind of plugging themselves into that world. Right. And then, of course, you know, uh, once Title IX is passed and the struggle for implementation, implementation, you know, persists into the 1970s and 80s, it's actually the University of Texas Austin uh, 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 athletic program, the women's athletic program, which was uh, directed by Donna Lopiano, which fields, you know, an outstanding, extraordinary uh, athletic program for women, particularly the, the the college, the basketball team, the women's basketball team, uh, and and that's interesting because that's in fierce, you know, fiercely opposed by Daryl Royal, who was the athletic program, uh, athletic director of the University of Texas. So you see, again, in this region that we associate with conservatism and backwardness, you know, this kind of interesting dynamic where, you know, the social movements are having their impact in the sporting world, right? Uh, and the other thing I talk about extensively in this book is the popularization of, of professionalized cheerleading with the birth of the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders which is a fascinating case because it, it, it exemplifies many of the debates that you're seeing happening in second wave feminism. It's also showing the, the absolute exploitation of cheerleading labor by the Cowboys and by the NFL. These are obviously topics of import today. Uh, and, and so what I'm trying to do in that chapter is sort of illustrate, you know, that this is a scene, this is a sport, cheerleading, although, you know, this is professionalized 
cheerleading in this case, you know, that had attracted, you know, conventionally attractive uh, athletic women. Uh, and they, you know, are really hugely important in the popularization of, of the franchise that becomes known as America's team. Right. And yet at the same time, their their labor is exploited, um, uh, uh, you know, in some ways brutally by the Cowboys themselves. Yeah. I mean, and I'm sure the Dallas Cowboys figure in your story as well, um, particularly because for, for such a straight laced America's team franchise, they had some rebels on that team. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, that, you know, so the Cowboys really, in some ways, they pioneered you know, what we see in sport management today, right? The, oh, the ultra rationalization of athletic labor, right? Tex Ram um, and Tom Landry r really use computerized scouting to sort of figure out how to extract as much uh, value from their, from their players, which is what, you know, many of these people do today, right? But at the same time, the Cowboys have a Calvin Hill. The Cowboys have a, a Dwayne Thomas, who's a really Thomas, interesting figure sure. in 1970 and 71, who, you know, he, he, he resists to some degree or to a large extent, you know, the Cowboy game, right? Which is that basically it's a sort of play for them and then get your fame but remain underpaid. And Thomas really just didn't go along with the program at all in 1970 and 71. And then they trade him, uh, you know, the next year after winning the Super Bowl in 1971. So, you know, the Cowboys are seen as this emblematic, you know, franchise uh, if from a sport management standpoint. What I'm trying to show in the book is that, uh, you know, their their brand is built on the exploitation of, of, of their of their male athletes, for sure. So that even Bob Lilly, the Hall of Fame defensive tackle for the Cowboys in the 60s and 70s, is underpaid. But uh, they're also getting a, a, a nice chunk of value from their cheerleaders by the late 1970s, right, when they become sort of America's sweethearts. And they're all over the place on Love Boat, uh, you know, on making television performances. Of course, there's a TV movie starring Jane Seymour in 1979. And so that's, this is generating enormous popularity and profits you know, from from a regime that's that's very exploitative. I mean, cheerleading is hard work. If you saw the, you know, the, the Netflix documentary from last year, Cheer, you understand uh, that cheerleading is 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 a is a is a is it requires enormous conditioning, enormous skill. And these women were, you know, really exemplified that themselves when they were when they were dancing for the Cowboys in the 70s. Mm. And then, of course, there's the legacy of Peter Gent. Yes. For the Cowboys, North right. Dallas 40. That's right. I mean, which right, really right. used the popularity of the Cowboys to open a window on something that really wasn't talked about that much in the 70s, so the hyper-exploitation. I'm so glad you, you, you mentioned, Gent, uh, uh, because, you know, what, what you do see in Texas is this kind of, is this a Texas, you know, kind of dimension of the larger athletic insurgency of the late 60s and early 70s, right? So I talk about Gary Shaw who wrote this expose uh, of the Texas uh, Longhorns football program that was coached by Daryl Royal, right? And it was one of the books that um, was shepherded through by Jack Scott, the athlete activist, uh, in 1970, 71. I think his book was published in 72. And it's a really fascinating book that really deserves a republication because what you're seeing Shaw do, he's a second-tier uh, offensive lineman trying to make it on Royal's Longhorns team in the 1960s, is the ruthless exploitation. Uh, that that made Royals, uh, uh, you know, team successful, right? Uh, and also the the larger questioning around masculinity. I mean, Shaw's book is raising some interesting questions about the absolute, uh, uh, you know, illogic of masculinity that guides the football world and American society, right? And so, you know, he's you know he's he's a very interesting figure. He dies, you know, years later. He doesn't make it as an offensive lineman, but his book is really important. It's one of those books from that era that really deserves a. Some attention. It's called. It was called uh, "Meat on the Hoof." Meat on the Hoof. I've mm -hmm. yes, I've never read it. I've yep. certainly heard of it. Uh, it, it. It's legend lingers. Yes. Yeah. And so when we think about that period, we think about obviously Smith and Carlos, Harry Edwards, Muhammad Ali, 
But then we've got the Dwayne Thomases, we've got the Gary Shaws, we've got you know we've got uh, you know football players resisting, refusing in different ways. So the Texas Christian, uh, there's a group of black uh, Texas Christian uh, football players who were resisting, you know, sort of the the authoritarian policies of, of the football coach there in 1970-71. You know, so you're seeing you know in Texas again some interesting you know interesting dynamics in terms of athlete activism. If someone asked you what's the fundamental difference between Texas and the more what we think of as traditional Jim Crow South, what would you say it is? Mm. Well, I think it is this interesting mix, you know, unlike in Alabama or Georgia, where because you have this large Latinx population, Mexican-American population, right, Jim Crow segregation acquires a slightly different, you know, uh, manifestation, right? Uh, and, and in some ways you, you see this in other cases where you have significant Latino or Latinx populations, right? But because, um, you know, you know, depending upon how light-skinned or darker-skinned Mexican-Americans were, you know, they could experience, you know, they could escape aspects of segregation to some degree. But, uh, but you know, but even if they were considered legally white in Texas, which they were, uh, they were not afforded full citizenship rights, right? And so, you know, what you're seeing in a, in a Texas is the kind of constant negotiation to establish racial hierarchy, right? That the white elites understand that they certainly is predicated on anti-blackness and to some degree on the exploit, and to a large degree on the exploitation of Mexican labor. Uh, but because you have this population that, you know, uh, you know, is, is, is racially diverse, you know, meaning the Latinx population, that means that Jim Crow looks different in a San Antonio and a Houston than it might in a, you know, in a Shreveport in an East Texas town, which looks much more like uh, what we would associate with the Louisiana, Alabama, or Georgia. Mm. I mean, was it the sort of thing where people was there colorism where people could pass? Is, is oh yes, absolutely, happened? absolutely. You have that you have that dynamic for sure, right? And and again, the middle class elite, you know, associated with the Latin American, the United uh, Citizens, the LULAC, you know, they're they're very much of that vein. Even as they're fighting for you know citizenship rights, full citizenship rights for Mexicans, certainly they're they're trying to mobilize their light skin privilege, you know, to the best that they could. But of course, that strategy had some real limits as well. Now, um, you, you, you have such a good case about how sports explains the power dynamics in Texas. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about you know, the recent energy crisis. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you're going to get this question a lot or you've gotten it a lot. W what does that tell us about Texas for people trying to understand this, this massive, diverse, uh, complicated state? Yeah. Great question. Uh, you know, one of the legacies of what I call the sports revolution, um, you know, which is also a larger political legacy of the 60s and 70s, is the reconstitution of the Republican Party uh, along the lines of explicit white grievance politics uh, that emerges in the wake of the civil rights struggles of the 1960s, right? So in the book, I talk about, you know, the ascendancy of, of, of George, of the Bush family, uh, and the ways in which if you follow his path from when he attends the 1969 um, famous Texas Longhorn-Arkansas uh, Razorback game that was televised in ABC Sports, the so-called, I think it was called the Great Shootout, uh, and he's in the stands there with Richard Nixon, you're seeing these interesting political alliances that are forging, right, from the between the National Republican Party and different, you know, Republican parties in the South. And what you see over time is the ascendancy uh, of the Republican Party in state politics and then to some degree in national politics, right? Uh, you know, the, the old segregationist uh, crowd that was in the Democratic Party essentially moves over to the Republicans, right? Um, and you can't understand what's happened in Texas and what happened a couple of weeks ago without saying the domination of the Republican Party through gerrymandering and voter suppression, right? Uh, and, and, and this is particularly clear in Texas because, again, of the substantial 
uh, non-white population, right? Uh, you know, the further south you go in the state, when you get down to the valley, but then moving upwards and, and also into the Houston areas and all over the state, you've got substantial populations of color that don't vote the same way. Absolutely, some of them vote Republican, but there's a large swath of them who are who are who are excluded from the franchise, right? So, uh, in order to understand the energy elite's domination, you have to you have to put it in dom in, in context in the political context, which is voter suppression and gerrymandering. And, and of course, as we know, even though that there were there were plenty of people who were inconvenienced and, and, and faced terrible conditions as a result of the power outages and the water outages, you know, a lot of the outages cars, you know, correlated to to socioeconomic status. Right. Which, are, of course, correlates to race. So, you know, I think to some degree, you know, the kind of the fundamentalism of free market, which, you know, basically means that in this case, that energy policy is, is totally a privatized um, uh, um, uh, solely privatized in a, in a place like Texas, right? There's no regulation. You know, that's that was part and parcel of Republican Party, Republican Party politics since the 1960s, and it still very much, you know, uh, dominates their thinking to this day, along with white supremacist politics. And so that's that's what you're seeing there, among other things too. And of course, you're also seeing the enormous mutual aid uh, work that people that people engage in to survive. Uh, in the absence of, of, of the state that really doesn't do much to help its population, right? The state there helps, you know, rich oil and energy guys make a lot of money, uh, and it doesn't do a whole lot for the majority of the population. And you and, you, and to see the stories of the, of the mutual aid work of people like rallying together to figure out how they could stay warm, staying in people's houses. I mean, I know this in the case of my in-laws, for example, uh, you know, to survive, uh, you know, all within the context of, of a COVID or crisis. It's, it's inspiring and it's also horrifying since to see what happened there. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, but it really is a legacy of, of the political alignments uh, and the dominance of the energy elite that that you know really took shape in the 1960s and 70s. Mm. Very, very cool, very cool indeed. Is there anything we're missing, Frank, that you want to cover that you think is essential to the narrative? I, I want to talk just a bit about kind of black um, grassroots sporting cultures that I see in Texas. You know. Um, <laughs> Uh, I mean, I could just go on and talk about it now, or you can ask a question I'd about it. No, no, no. We're, we're, we're all, we tend not to edit much. So Yeah, yeah, sure. I'd, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, you know, when I was in Texas, I encountered um, these black Texas sports enthusiasts uh, who, who uh, formed the Prairie View um, uh, Interscholastic League Coaches Association. And the Prairie View Interscholastic League was essentially the black um, uh, 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 parallel to the University Athletic League, which governed high school sports. In the Jim Crow era, uh, because uh, the UIL had excluded black students in black schools from its competitions, uh, you know, uh, black folks in Texas did uh, what they always did. And I'm quoting the historian Earl Lewis here. They turned segregation into congregation. Right. They formed their own sporting associations. They formed their own sporting competitions. They f and, and, and they produced extraordinarily athletic, you know, legendary athletes that we associate with Hall of Famers like Joe, Joe Green, for example, um, you know, Cliff Branch, uh, among many track stars come out of Texas. And they, they're really rooted in this grassroots black, black sports scene that Michael Hurd has written about in his book Thursday Night, Thursday Night Lights. But the last chapter of the book really looks at Phi Slamma Jamma, the University of Houston Cougars, um, a legendary college basketball program that uh, that burst on the scene in the early 1980s. And what I do in that chapter is I show that, you know, what, what the coach Guy Lewis is able to do is able to tap into the Houston black grassroots scene as it was operating in the night sports scene as it was operating in the 1970s. And, and that, that really you see congregating at the Fondy Rec Center, which is, is like is, is Houston's version of what we would associate with the Rucker Park here in Harlem, kind of this, this black grassroots 
sports scene that produces enormous uh, uh, athletic talent, but also, uh, you know, it's also just an important congregating scene for black Houstonians and all Houstonians who are into basketball. And so it's not by accident that, you know, many of uh, Lewis's best players, Clyde Drexler, uh, Michael Young, uh, among others, and of course, Hakeem Olajuwon winds up on his lap coming from Nigeria in 1980. Uh, that that team, you know, makes an enormous stylistic impact on the game, right? That, that kind of Houston playground scene shows up in the ways in which Fi Slam and Jammer played basketball. And so what I try to do, again, is by to, to situate, you know, this legendary college basketball program that we associate, you know, with the kind of national story of college basketball and show how they're really rooted in black Houstonian, uh, um, you know, institutions like the Fondy Rec Center. Wow, that's great stuff. And that's you're talking about, like, maybe my first sports memory. Uh-huh. Phi Slamma Jamma, no doubt about it. Yeah, you know, so that we think about, you know, the black playground basketball, we have to talk about Fondi. You know, I mean, there's a Baker League in Philadelphia. There's obviously the things we see in Chicago and New York. Fondi Rec Center is one of those places. And, you know, the press is covering this at this time. You know, like pros, you know, at like we see in Philadelphia and New York and Chicago, pros like Moses Malone are working out in the Fondi Rec Center, right? He's playing against, he's playing against these, local, these local cats in the gym. Uh, you know, and uh, the Fondi history is really interesting, and and it really shows up in that in that in that five slime jamma team. Wow, rock and roll! This is great stuff. the The book is called "The Sports Revolution: How Texas Changed the Culture of American Athletics." And I'd be I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you what I ask everybody, Frank, which is like when you're writing a book, whether it's while you're writing or whether it's to chill in between long ass writing sessions, music plays a role. What music were you listening to? What was your inspirational either playlist or album while you were working on this? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm a jazz head. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously, I, you know, I'm somebody who loves Coltrane, John Coltrane and folks like that, you know, associated with 60s free jazz. You know, but this, the talented Kamasi Washington, you know, uh, is somebody who I've listened to a lot. And I listened to a lot when I was writing this book. You know, Kamasi Washington, Washington uh, you know, who did the great album, The Epic, in 2015, has done other stuff since then. You know, I think Washington's music has that kind of spiritual component that you can hear in Coltrane's sound. And when I'm writing and when I'm feeling like I need to get in touch with my spirit, I put on some Kamasi Washington, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and he's an absolute I think he's a musical genius. Uh, and he you know, he's often overlooked. Obviously, he's played with hip hop musicians. He's got you know, he's, he's got a real versatile style. But his music has that kind of, you know, that that deep spiritual impact that reaches inside you if you're willing to, to listen. I just uh, started getting really into Oscar Peterson. Mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is you know, a revelation. I've always you know, heard of him and at the margins of the jazz I was listening to, but I've been doing a, a deep dive and I found it to be very rewarding. Yeah, but, no, deep dives into music you know, are, are, are clarifying. They, 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 they help clarify things to me, you know, even if, especially if I'm trying to work through an idea or if I'm trying to work through an emotion, to be honest with you, you know, putting on music like that really helps. Oh, rock and roll, that's such a great answer. Um, once again, once again, the book is The Sports Revolution, How Texas Changed the Culture of American Athletics. Frank Gurdy, man, you really got something good here. Thank you so much. Dave, thank you so much for having me. I've been long an admirer of your work, and it's really a pleasure to talk to you today. Oh, it's such a great topic. We'll be back right after this, after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. 
This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about the madness of March. The show must go on. This famous phrase of the 19th century circus world has always seemed to lack context. The show must go on, especially if the show's owners will go bankrupt if the curtains close, is far more apt. The NCAA and its P.T. Barnum without the charisma president, Mark Emmert, are moving ahead as planned with March Madness. They are putting their plans into place even though the women's and men's tournament could be COVID-19 super spreader events, afflicting the population right at the moment when this country is finally vaccinating folks and seeing infection rates go down. But the NCAA isn't ignorant of this fact. It knows that putting on these tournaments regardless of risk is a necessity for its economic survival. The nonprofit organization has seen its revenues cave in the last year, especially after it canceled March Madness in 2020. The overwhelming majority of its operating revenue comes from this tournament. It has lost untold millions of dollars and has had to cut its workforce by 25%. Speaking of that magic, utterly unscientific number of 25%, that's how full the arenas and stadiums, yes, stadiums, are going to be in March for the tourneys. That means when the men's Final Four plays in Lucas Oil Stadium, seating capacity 70,000, it will be in front of nearly 18,000 fans. That doesn't even factor in the people who will be descending upon Indianapolis and San Antonio, two COVID hotspots, and then returning to their part of the country, perhaps with a viral souvenir. And take a moment to say a prayer for San Antonio because hasn't the state of Texas suffered enough in recent weeks? And I'm not just talking about Ted Cruz, obviously. In order to put lipstick on this emaciated pig, the NCAA has announced that its amateur players will be under quarantine conditions for the duration of the tourney in the name of safety. They will be traveling by private plane or bus to arrive in Indy or San Antonio, eating in their hotel rooms, and wearing electronic contact tracing contraptions that will monitor whether they venture among the infected. As Patrick Ruby, a journalist, longtime NCAA critic, and previous guest on this program, said to me only half-jokingly, this is a step up from the normal surveillance of college players. Recalling the ways that these alleged amateurs always have eyes upon them to make sure they're going to class, not posting on social media, or registering for coach-approved classes and even parties. There is a pre-existing surveillance culture in the sport, and this is an extension of that. But the NCAA, by imposing these conditions of quarantine and surveillance, is giving the game away. It was one thing when the WNBA and NBA players lived through a version, albeit a much longer one, of this in the Orlando bubble last summer. But they are professional athletes with hefty salaries, healthcare, a union, and quarantine rules that were collectively bargained. And still, we learn that depression born of isolation was a result. No similar concerns for the mental health of these much younger players has been expressed by Amert. The NCAA is a dictatorship, a cartel, imposing these rules on players with their only freedom being the freedom to take it or leave it. 
David West, a former NBA star, chief operating officer of the Professional Collegiate League, which is a competitor to the NCAA's business model, and a former guest on the Edge of Sports podcast, said this to me. I think now more than ever, the true exploitative nature of the NCAA system is on full display. There is no longer a gray area. It's pretty clear that players are being used to generate revenues to maintain the economic system in place that everyone benefits from financially, except the players and their families. Or as Ruby said to me, the entire operation is a giant workplace safety issue for people who according to the NCAA aren't employees. This year's quarantine tournament is one more piece of ammunition for the argument that these are in fact employees and should have the basic workplace rights that go along with this. If I was attorney, this would be evidence one. Now, in 2014, a regional board of the National Labor Relations Board affirmed that revenue-producing athletes are in fact campus employees because, as Inside Higher Ed wrote, quote, they perform services for the benefit of their employer and receive compensation in the form of a scholarship in exchange. And scholarship players are subject to the employer's control in the performance of their duties as football players, end quote. That phrase, subject to an employer's control, has never been in doubt in the world of college sports. These athletes are workers in every way, except they aren't paid a wage but exist in a kind of constitutional carve-out unique to so-called student-athletes, meaning that they lack even the frayed legal protections that a typical American worker has. The union efforts of Northwestern players were shut down by the NLRB in 2015, but the national NLRB. But that decision that they made also punted on the question of whether players could assert their rights as laborers in the future. Given that COVID-19 is going to define the near future of sports, there has never been a better time for the players to state firmly that the game must change. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. This week, the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down award goes around the same dynamic, and that's the dynamic between LeBron James and Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Very fascinating because... First of all, for those who don't know, LeBron and Zlatan have something in common. They're both on the very short list of athletes that we know by one name. You know, LeBron, Serena, Tiger, and you got Zlatan. Now, Zlatan can just sit his ass down. Sit your ass down. Because he criticized LeBron James for being outspoken politically and said it was a mistake and it doesn't look good when James and other famous people get involved in politics. Slatan, 
Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Just stand up. Stand up. Goes to LeBron James because LeBron James, first of all, had a great response. He said, I would never shut up about things that are wrong. I preach about my people. I preach about equality, social injustice, racism, systemic voter suppression, things that go on in our community. Because I was part of my community at one point, and I saw the things that was going on, and I know what's going on still because I have a group of 300 plus kids at my school that are going through the same thing, and they need a voice, and I'm their voice. I'm their voice. I use my platform to continue to shed light on everything that may be going on, not in only my community, but around this country and around this world. So there's no way I would ever just stick to sports because I understand how this platform and how powerful my voice is. Now, LeBron also brought to the table that, and this is a real sit your ass down to Zlatan, that Zlatan said a couple years ago that he was subject to undercover racism in his native Sweden because his Bosnian roots gave him a surname that doesn't sound Swedish. And LeBron said in his press conference, he was the same guy who said when he was back in Sweden because his last name wasn't a certain last name, that he felt there was some racism going on when he was out on the pitch. I speak from a very educated mind, so I'm kind of the wrong guy to actually go at because I do my homework. Wow. I mean, to have LeBron James smack you down in such a manner, at least Latan now knows what Andre Iguodala feels like. Oof. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Frank Gurity. Thank you so much to Frank for writing this amazing book. I'm so excited we got to talk about it on the Edge of Sports podcast. Folks should definitely, definitely, definitely check this book out. All about Texas and sports. It's really something else. Thank you so much to my producer, David Tigaboo. Thanks to The Nation magazine. If you're out there, yo, mask up, please. And please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.